Well, good evening. Thank you for the opportunity to share with you again. It's great to be back in Charlotte Chapel, as we said this morning. It's been uh, quite a few years now, and we came back to the UK last year, but couldn't get to Scotland uh, until just now. But we're glad to be here and enjoying renewing fellowship with many. Tonight, uh, as we look at the scriptures, as we look at this story from Acts, we're going to talk about food, conversion, and who God uses in mission. But let's start with food, because who doesn't like food? And I want to start actually with these words, eat whatever is set before you. These are not the words that your mum said to you, perhaps they are the words that your mum said to you, eat, but they're the words that Jesus said when he sent out 72 of his disciples to the towns and the villages that he was going to, to prepare the way. He said, if some, when you enter a house, say, peace to this house, and then someone promotes peace there, your peace will rest on them. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you. When you're welcomed, eat what is offered to you. And the interesting thing about living overseas is we're offered all kinds of different things. And we used to have guests come visit us in Vietnam, people who were visiting the country, and we'd have them for a meal, and, and we'd text them and say, is there anything you don't eat? And they say, no, I eat everything. Well, in Vietnam, everything is a much wider category than it is in Britain. And we were usually too nice to test whether they really meant everything when they sent everything. Our own a particular memory is being taken out to a restaurant in Beijing, China. We were being taken out by a young Korean-American couple who I think were trying to impress us. So they took us to this nice restaurant, and they said, do you eat raw fish? I think, raw fish, sushi, yeah, we're good with raw fish. So they ordered the set menu, and we had various dishes of raw fish brought to the table. And then we got the climax of the meal, the octopus. Now, the octopus had been alive 30 seconds earlier before it had been chopped up and brought to the table, still wriggling. And my wife is a very good missionary, so she takes her chopsticks and she picks up the octopus leg, stops it from wriggling up the chopstick, and downs it. And I do the same. And, and this couple do the same. We haven't had that since. But it's not an experience you should miss if you get the opportunity. But then we saw this couple the following week, and they said, are you angry with us? And we said, no, why? Well, they said, we didn't know we'd ordered that. <laughs> and, and so we were shocked when it came to the table. And then you both ate it, so we had to eat it too. <laughs> Why this focus on food? Food matters to us. Food is part of our culture. Food is part of who we are, part of what we were brought up with, which is why for so many, our mother's cooking is something special, something we feel safe with, something we, we like to go back to. And foreign food, it can be fun, but it can be hard to adjust to. 
One of the things that I've noticed over the years is that breakfast time is the time where people are least adjustable, where they most want the thing that they grew up with, and they're least happy to move from cornflakes to fried rice and dried fish, or to whatever it is in that culture. Why did Jesus focus on food? Because mission is about going to other people, different people. And mission is not just going to them to push on them what we have. It's going to them to learn to live life on their terms. And part of those terms is learning to eat their food, to be part of their lives, the way they live them, in order that we might win some opportunities to tell them about Jesus. Well, our story today begins with a dream about food. But it's more than just food. It's also about a key conversion in the history of the church. Now, if you've read the story, if you know the story already, the story of Cornelius and the story of Peter, you will know that this is the point at which Cornelius comes to the Lord and is filled with the Holy Spirit and is clearly converted. But many feel that actually the key person who gets converted in this story is not Cornelius, but Peter. John Stott says, the principal subject of this chapter is not so much the conversion of Cornelius as the conversion of Peter. But was not Peter already converted? I'm teaching a course at the moment at All Nations on cross-cultural church planting and discipleship. And when I'm talking about discipleship, I always like to ask my students, when was Peter converted? We know his story from the point at which Jesus came and called him and said, come and I'll make you fishers of men. And they dropped their nets and they started following. Is that when he was converted? Or was it when he made that amazing profession of faith when Jesus said, who, who am I? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Or was it when he was restored by Jesus after he had denied him and Jesus commissioned him to feed his sheep? Or is it here in Acts 10 and 11 when he finally understands who it is that Jesus has actually died for because he hasn't actually got that until this story? The professor of biblical theology of mission that I studied under at Fuller Theological Seminary 20 years ago now, Dr. Charles Van Engen, says Peter's faith development can be seen as a three-part conversion. A conversion to Jesus Christ as his Messiah and Lord, marked by that profession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then secondly, a conversion to the church as Christ's sheep, the body of Christ, to which he becomes committed to. And then a conversion to the world for whom Christ died, which happens here in Acts 10 and 11. A threefold conversion. Well, you better not go away from Charlotte Chapel tonight telling people we have this new doctrine of threefold conversion. Or it'll certainly be the last time I get to preach if that's the case. For all of us, there is a point at which we are born again, a point at which we move from death to life, 
a point at which we become a new creation in Christ. God knows when that moment is. Sometimes we know when that moment is, sometimes we don't. And sometimes with other people, it's even less clear to us when that work of God happens in us. But alongside that, there is a process of the transformation of our minds and a growing in understanding. And at times this proceeds incrementally and at times we make leaps forward in that understanding. And I find these three significant leaps of understanding that Peter made very helpful. That point when he understood who Christ was and committed his life to him. That point when he understood the importance of the body of Christ and committed himself to it. And actually, I see that pattern often with new Christians. They commit to Christ, but it's a while before they, they understand the importance of the body of Christ and being part of it. And then this third leap of understanding for Peter, when he understood that the good news of Jesus Christ was for everyone in the world and committed himself to that. And when Peter committed, he committed. A friend this week said, I have a compulsive personality. If I do anything, I have to do it 100%. And I think that was Peter as well. So when he got it, he got it. And this third step of Peter's conversion is, is so important that it's actually one of the most important stories in Acts. Am I exaggerating? I don't think so. It gets almost two chapters. This evening, we didn't have the full version. That's chapter 10. We just had the shorter repeat version in chapter 11 because otherwise it's a, a rather long, long reading. It's the longest single narrative in Acts at 66 verse, verses. And if we include the explanatory retelling and the referencing, it's 74 verses. Pentecost, which is obviously very important, it's just 46 verses. Stephen's sermon, the longest in Acts, is just 61. And it's so important that we get it told twice. So Acts 10, we get the story in detail, and then Peter is asked to give an account of himself, and Luke could have just said, Peter told them what had happened. Six words in English, probably only four in Greek. But it, Luke didn't. He told the whole story again that we wouldn't miss anything important. And it's referred to again at the Council of Jerusalem. And my professor, Van Engen, reckons it was written in a special Old Testament style for recording the acts of God, so that what happened was not just another evangelistic event, but a special act of God, that this would be a breakthrough for Peter and a breakthrough for the church because this was not just the third part of Peter's conversion, but a critical moment of conversion for the entire New Testament church. In the first chapter of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, Luke quotes Jesus' words as a way of setting out for us what is going to happen in Acts. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in the second chapter of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes down and they witness in Jerusalem and the church comes into being in Jerusalem. About five years later, the church has grown. But it's still mainly just in Jerusalem. And it was 
largely persecution rather than obedience in Acts chapter 8 that gets the church out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Then Saul got converted, Acts chapter 9, and caused a stir. But they sent him off to Tarsus. And I always love this verse in chapter 9, verse 31. And they sent Paul off. And then the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. He was the kind of guy that only got peace after he'd gone. The church was growing. But the progress from Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth was not happening the way Jesus had intended. Don Richardson, who was a Canadian missionary to Papua New Guinea, who discovered a particularly effective peace child analogy, said hundreds of millions of Christians think that Luke acts of the, Luke's Acts of the Apostles records the 12 apostles' obedience to the Great Commission. Actually, it records their reluctance to obey it, at least up to this point. Hadn't Jesus made it clear? Matthew 28, 18 to 20, go and make disciples of all nations, of all peoples, of all ethnicities, to get the breadth of the word. Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And Acts 1, verse 8, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Hadn't Peter already understood it? At Pentecost, we have this dramatic event when the Spirit descends very visibly with the sound of wind and tongues of fire, and everybody started speaking coherently and intelligibly in language they didn't even know. And Peter stands up, and he explains what is happening, and he refers to the Old Testament Scripture, and he tells the gospel, the good news about Jesus, who was handed over to you by deliberate plan and foreknowledge, put to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead because it was impossible for death to hold him. Now he is exalted to the right hand of God and received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, which he has poured out, which is what they have seen. And he tells them what they need to do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If all that's new to you, please talk to somebody before you leave this evening and find out what that could mean for you. Peter adds, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord your God will call. For you, for your children, for all who are far, far away, for everybody that the Lord will call. When I've read that, for all who are far off, I've read the world I've read members of every nation, every people of the world that God will call. I see that promise that centuries later and thousands of miles were extended to me and to you who are far off and extends to Filipinos and Vietnamese and tribes people in the jungles of South America or Papua New Guinea and the tens of millions of Chinese in China's megacities. But did Peter... He was talking to a group of Jews, Jews that had been scattered around the known world and had come back to Jerusalem for the festival. 
The promise was for them. The promise was for their children. The promise was for other Jews still scattered around the world who hadn't been able to come back to Jerusalem. Did Peter see other people? The non-Jews? The Gentiles? Did people see them as included in the promise? I think what we see unfolding suggests that he didn't. That he said something that was bigger and deeper than he understood. But what he actually meant by it was, was not all that God intended by it. Why doesn't he understand? Well, from birth he's been brought up to think the Messiah was coming for the Jews. The Jews were God's special chosen people. They lived as a race apart because they had been set apart. But they'd quite forgotten the promise to Abraham that they were chosen and blessed so that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And that, of course, is why we have been chosen, that we would be blessed by being brought into relationship through God, with God through Christ, but so that others will be blessed too. And God breaks down their prejudice in order to release this good news so it's not just trapped in the Jewish community. And it starts with the food. So we're back to the food again. A vision at midday. This, I always imagine a sort of big, bulky guy is Peter. He's certainly a hungry fisherman sleeping on the roof of a tannery. That's where they treat leather. I'm told the, the smell would have been awful. Um, but he's sleeping there. And he's dreaming about food. And if you think the food is a slideshow, it's interesting that when the complaint gets back to Jerusalem about what Peter has done, the complaint is that you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. He doesn't say, and you preached to them, and you ate with them. And he did. In fact, he ended up staying several days, so was completely guilty as charged. Because food was what set them apart. And by eating with them, he had closed that gap. And there being no gap, he had shared the gospel. But Peter is a most terrible house guest. He, he, he arrives at Cornelius' house, and the first thing he says is, your house is unclean. Now, I don't know what you were taught to do when you get to somebody's house. We're taught in many parts of Asia to be very careful about complimenting things in the house because there's a great danger in some cultures that you say, oh, that's a lovely vase. But when you're leaving, you find that somehow when you weren't looking, the vase got taken away and wrapped up and is given to you at the door as you go out. And that's very nice but awfully embarrassing. But you can always compliment somebody's house and tell them what a nice house it is because they're not going to wrap up the house and give it to you. But you don't walk into the house and go, your house is unclean, I shouldn't be here. But he does. But then he's being pushed by God. He shares about Jesus. But we know he's never going to get to the altar call. He's never going to say, this is for you. He manages the explanation of the gospel up to all the prophets testify that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. But he stops. We can't know exactly what was going on in Peter's head, but my sense he was feeling, but these can't, people can't believe because they're Gentiles. So I, I've told them the message, but it's a message for somebody else. 
And so God has to intervene. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Nowhere else in Acts does the Spirit come before belief and baptism, except here where God had to show Peter because he didn't believe that the message that he was sharing was for the people that he was sharing it to. And Peter's explanation later to the people back at Jerusalem was really, it's not my fault, I couldn't stop God. I want to ask you this evening, have you experienced the third part of conversion? Conversion commitment to Christ, conversion commitment to his people, conversion to commitment to his world that he died for. I've noticed working in a lot of different contexts that sharing the good news with your own people, that comes fairly naturally. You've discovered something good. You're excited about it. You want to share it with those who are near and dear to you. You might need some help, you might need a little encouragement, but you want them to have what you have discovered. But sharing it with strangers, that's a bit more difficult, especially strangers of another ethnicity, especially people who've looked down on you and your people, perhaps for generations, perhaps as long as you have a memory, or people that you look down on. And it often takes a special prompting and a divine intervention to see that happen, to see people ready to take the good news across cultural barriers to people who are completely different, who eat different food and have different customs. And actually, if we're honest, we don't really like their houses anyway because they're not like we would arrange our houses. Ajith Fernando, who's a Sri Lankan who led the work of Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka for many, many years, observed that living in a land of ethnic strife, and Sri Lanka has many different uh, ethnic groups, some of whom have been at war with each other at different times, and struggling with the questions of feelings for one's own race and the other's race in a time of conflict, I've come to realize that prejudice is often one of the last things that is touched by the process of sanctification. And sometimes I wonder if that prejudice is masked by pious statements. Like, I can't go as long as there's still need here in Scotland or here in the UK. Is that justifiable? Or is that prejudice? Why can you not go while there are still unconverted people here? Do Scottish people or British people have priority? And anyway, who decides where you go and when you go if you have made Jesus Christ really your Lord? Do we see all peoples as people Christ has died for and who he wants you to live for, whether that is somebody like Cornelius, a migrant already in the same country, or someone far away in a different country. Maybe you've had that third part of your conversion already, 
and you believe with all your heart that this good news is for all people and God sets the priorities and you want to follow them. But you wonder whether God can use you. You don't seem like the right person to reach these different people. And I want to encourage you that God loves to choose unlikely people to fulfill his purposes. And I have to admit, as I've studied this passage and I've looked at who Cornelius was and I've looked at who Peter was, I've often felt Peter was just a really bad choice. Surely there was somebody better. Cornelius was a Roman armed captain. He had standing in the community. He was known for his good works. He probably had a very nice house. Peter is this rough, ready fisherman uh, who hasn't been trained in proper manners, as we've seen, uh, who doesn't feel at all positively about Cornelius. You know, some people don't like foreign migrants because they think they steal our jobs. There's some statistical debate about that. But Cornelius is not there stealing their jobs. He is part of the Roman occupying army. He's part of stealing their country. There are lots of reasons not to like Cornelius. So why Peter? He wasn't chosen for his tact and cultural sensitivity. Doesn't seem to know how to behave himself. I suspect if he applied to our organization, OMF, he would not do very well on our psychological tests. And we would probably recommend a, a lengthier time before he was ready for overseas service. We'd probably be missing out. God often seems to choose the unlikely. And God loves to jump across these barriers that have been set up between people. Just this last week, we've been preparing for an event next week when we will hear a number of testimonies. And one of those testimonies that I've, I've received in, on video in preparation for that is by a girl called Yok from the Kachin people in Myanmar. The Kachin people are one of Myanmar or Burma's ethnic minorities. There are perhaps three or four million of them, so they're a sizable group in Myanmar, Thailand, uh, and India. She and her family had been forced by fighting to flee Myanmar and live in Thailand. And the Kachin had been fighting against the government since 1961. 60 years of fighting on and off. And they've become migrants in Thailand. And there she became a Christian. And now that she's become a Christian, she wants to spend her life as a missionary to the Shan. Go to the Shan. The Shan are another ethnic minority, which you also find in Myanmar, in Burma. And some of them have also been pushed over the border into Thailand because of conditions there. But Kachin people hate Shan people. According to a missionary who spent his life working with these groups, the Kachin have a saying that translates, a Kachin loves spicy food, a pretty woman, and to kill a Shan. And this is not just talk. I googled through the news and just last year, two 17-year-old Shan schoolboys were abducted while vacationing and killed by rogue elements of the Kachin Independence Army. No particular motive, except that they were Shan. And that incident made the news. 
Many such incidents don't. Some of us watched a movie last night about two tribes set against each other, wanting to spear each other, who killed five missionaries. But that happened 65 years ago. But that kind of hate between peoples still lives on, perhaps not in those peoples. We saw how God broke through and changed that, but still among some peoples. But Yok, coming from that people who hate the Shan, who want to kill the Shan, wants to give her life to take the good news of life to the Shan. Another testimony we're looking at is the testimony of Filipino ladies who've married Japanese and moved to Japan. And you know, we're particularly focused on Vietnamese, and a lot of Vietnamese marry Taiwanese men and Korean men and Singaporean men and go to these countries. And I sometimes thought, what is happening there? What is God doing there? It doesn't seem to be much in it. But these Filipino ladies with their Japanese husbands are church planting in Japan. It's not why they went there, but having got there, that's what they're doing. And they have a, a little church now up and running. Its services are held in English, Tagalog, and Japanese, which, which must be a nightmare to organize, but they're making it work. And it's not a dead end. None of our movements for God are dead ends. He has a purpose. He will work it out. So don't say, I'm not the right person. God knows what he is doing. God has no wrong persons in his plans. God has a part for you in his mission plan for the nations. Let him decide what it is. Just focus on following him and discovering it. This good news. This good news is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. That's what Peter proclaimed at Pentecost. That's what we believe. And we believe that God is calling people from every nation and every tribe and every kind of people. And Peter proclaimed that, but it was several years later before he understood that. And I just want to check with you tonight that you're fully converted to that and that you're fully committed to that and that you're ready in pursuit of that to eat whatever is set before you. Probably metaphorically, probably in terms of accepting life on other people's terms that we may have an opportunity to share Jesus. Occasionally, actually, you may be faced with things to eat that Perhaps you wouldn't have chosen. But the most important thing of being ready to cross the cultural divide, to share life on their terms, so that when the time is right, we can share Christ on their terms too. That we might see people of all ethnicities, all classes, all countries, all places being granted repentance, forgiveness, and the gift of the Holy Spirit and new life in Jesus Christ. Don't let you be a barrier to that happening for the people God has planned that you are part of his story in touching their story. 
of discovering Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Peter. We thank you for his passion. We thank you for his wholeheartedness. We thank you that he often spoke truth that was deeper than he knew it. And at Pentecost, he spoke this truth. And we who are far off in both time and space have been blessed by this truth that the good news was for us. And help us to grasp that. If there's anybody in our minds we thought, it's not for them, but it is. And help us to commit to that, that you would use us in whatever way you please and you plan to be part of your purposes. That all who are far off, who you've planned would believe in Jesus, would hear and be part of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. Hear the call of the kingdom. <laughs>